all the lovers of the strange. The sky watchers of the night. Hello, citizens, and welcome to Unknown. I'm Jason McClellan. Thanks for hanging out with me. For our episode today, we're continuing with this year's exploration of the 1947 Roswell UFO incident. Make sure to listen to the previous episode or two if you need an overview of the details of this case. But at a very basic level, most people around the world have heard of this alleged UFO crash that took place 75 years ago. As I just mentioned, I provided an overview of this incident on a previous episode of this show, and as we advance our study of this case today, we're going to move to one of the sexier and more sensational aspects that makes the Roswell incident so exciting for many people, and that's the claims of alien bodies. The assertion that not only did an extraterrestrial piloted craft crash in the New Mexico desert, but the bodies of those extraterrestrials were also recovered by the military. Let's look together at the sources of these claims and any evidence to support them. The mysterious incident that occurred in the New Mexico desert all the way back in 1947 made a momentary splash in the headlines, but quickly fizzled out and faded from public thought. It wasn't until more than three decades later that UFO researchers reintroduced the world to the Roswell incident and helped cement it as a pop culture fixture. These researchers are the ones who tracked down alleged witnesses, pieced things together, and presented the story we all now know as the Roswell incident. From a pop culture knowledge perspective, anybody who has heard about the Roswell incident has likely heard that whatever crashed in Roswell was an extraterrestrial spacecraft and that the military recovered multiple alien bodies from the crash. The impression given is that everybody who lived in or around Roswell at the time knew about the alien visitors and that countless witnesses exist to corroborate this sensational tale. Some definitely like to paint that picture, but when we actually look into the source of alien body claims... The number of possible first-hand witnesses is far less than one might expect, given the legendary status of the Roswell incident. Let's look at this a little closer. There are a number of alleged witnesses who have come forward to divulge shocking details related to this case. Most are from people who claim that family members or friends relayed incredible information to them over the years related to the incident. But as far as publicly identified first-hand witnesses with claims of seeing alien bodies who have been interviewed, three. Three alleged witnesses. That's it. The first person we'll look at today is Frank Kaufman. Kaufman enlisted in the Army and he served at Roswell Army Airfield both during and after World War II. During the time of the Roswell incident, July 1947, he was a civilian personnel clerk at the base but he presented himself to UFO researchers as still being on active duty at the time and in a much more important intelligence role. And of course, he claimed to have played a significant role in the military's flying saucer recovery and subsequent cover-up. 
The testimony from Frank Kaufman takes a story about a rancher trying to get the military to clean up scraps of strange material from the desert and transforms it into an epic tale of an alien spacecraft and its occupants and a coordinated military effort to collect the evidence and make the entire incident disappear. It's Frank's testimony that complicates the Roswell story by adding another location of interest, a second crash site. Frank's story directs researchers away from the debris field on the Foster Ranch to a location two and a half miles to the southeast, or 20 miles south, depending on which version of his story you listen to. According to Kaufman, it's here that the military discovered and recovered a crashed, but mostly intact, alien spacecraft that was approximately 30 feet in diameter. He added to his story that three or four or five again, depending on which version of his story you listen to, small beings with large heads and eyes were discovered. He described them as being very human-looking. They had the normal five digits on each hand, and they wore skin-tight flight suits. He said that two bodies were outside the craft, while three were still inside, and one of those outside the craft was still alive. He alleged that the Army had teams working at both sites to remove any and all evidence and he even sketched out what the alien craft looked like on a piece of paper for key Roswell researchers Don Schmidt and Kevin Randall. But he tore it up after showing it to them. He seemed to have a habit of teasing documents and the like, but never supplying them to researchers. As for the alien bodies, Kaufman told researchers that the bodies were placed in body bags and then were all sealed in a single wooden crate. This single wooden crate was then moved to an empty aircraft hangar and... In pure Hollywood fashion, they shined a spotlight on it while armed soldiers stood guard. This crate was allegedly loaded onto a B-29 the next day and flown to Fort Worth Army Airfield. The claims made by Frank Kaufman are extremely problematic and full of red flags. His story changed multiple times, and his claims became quite sensational. After his death in 2001, his wife allowed researchers from the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, also known as KUFOS, to examine files that Frank asserted were official government documents. KUFOS researchers discovered that Kaufman fabricated the documents in an attempt to support his wild claims. This pivotal Roswell witness was exposed as a hoaxer and a fraud. I know it might be surprising and pretty hard to fathom, but this is essentially the primary source for claims of alien bodies at Roswell. And today, many leading researchers have dismissed his testimony. Primary Roswell researcher Kevin Randall publicly declared that he no longer has any confidence in the testimony provided by Kaufman. Stanton Friedman, another principal Roswell researcher, even used Kaufman to take shots at Randall. In an issue of the Mutual UFO Network's UFO Journal, Friedman blasted Randall, calling him gullible for falling for Kaufman's, quote, tall tales, end quote. That's one witness. Let's now look at Jim Ragsdale. Jim was a civilian, not a member of the military, and he found himself in the remote New Mexico desert on the 4th of July weekend back in 1947. Not because of a UFO, but because of good old-fashioned adultery. He and a married woman, whose husband was stationed at Roswell Army Airfield, drove out into the desert, approximately 40 miles north of Roswell, to camp in their secret love nest, the bed of Ragsdale's pickup truck. Ooh, yeah. 
he provided testimony to Roswell researchers, claiming that while he and his friend were naked and drinking in the bed of his truck, they saw a bright flash of light headed to the southeast. They also heard this object roar as it passed overhead. They claimed they saw this object crash to earth, and the next morning they drove one to two miles toward that direction, and they reportedly found a ravine covered with strange material. He also claimed that they found a damaged craft and small bodies outside this craft. Ragsdale told researchers that he started collecting some of this material, but his friend tossed it back out of the truck immediately because she was frightened and wanted to leave. This move turned out to be fortuitous because Ragsdale claimed the area was quickly locked down by the military. He and his friend were lucky enough to escape before being noticed. As with Frank Kaufman, Ragsdale's claims grew more sensational and more problematic as researchers pursued his story. One red flag was a statement made by his wife to a researcher who phoned their home seeking more information. She essentially told the researcher that he must have the wrong Ragsdale because her husband didn't move to Roswell until 1959. Then there are inconsistencies, like changing his story to say that he and his friend did actually take material from the crashed alien craft. The location of his sexcapade changed to the Capitan Mountains more than 50 miles northwest of Roswell, and his interaction with the alleged alien bodies became more involved too. He amended his story to include a brave or perhaps stupid entry into the crashed craft and an attempt to remove a helmet from one of the crash victims. He even claimed seeing a throne-type seat that was adorned with diamonds and rubies. His story about the strange material transformed and became much more exciting. After changing his story to say that he actually kept some of the unusual debris, he said that he and his secret lover proudly displayed it and showed it around at a bar. He alleged that this action caught the attention of the military, and as a result, his car, where he was supposedly hiding the material, and its trailer were stolen from his house. And his lover, the one who was said to be frightened and not wanting anything to do with the material, apparently had some of the material with her too when she was in a car accident that took her life. But that material was mysteriously gone from the car wreckage, a story offered by Ragsdale to suggest the military was killing people off to recover any of this alien material. Also, another small detail, as has become such a basic, accepted element of the Roswell UFO story, Ragsdale said he and his friend were camping during that 4th of July weekend as a thunderstorm was taking place. But National Weather Service records demonstrate that there was absolutely no thunderstorm activity anywhere near Roswell, New Mexico, from July 2nd through July 7th. The testimony of Jim Ragsdale conveniently took its wild turn when he signed a deal with Max Littell, one of the founders of the International UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell, New Mexico, who formed a production company in Ragsdale's name to make money off Ragsdale's incredible story. There are clearly problems with this alleged witness, too. Back in 2015, Roswell researcher Kevin Randall publicly offered his opinion that, quote, Today, I don't think there are many who believe that Ragsdale saw anything. End quote. Then we have Gerald Anderson. As we've covered previously, the Roswell incident vanished from the public's mind almost as quickly as the alleged alien craft crashed to the ground. It was something that came and went, 
and didn't re-emerge until UFO researchers breathed new life into the story in the late 1980s. When the television series Unsolved Mysteries covered the Roswell incident in 1989, that opened the floodgates and alleged witnesses started pouring in. That's how Gerald Anderson entered the picture. Anderson alleged that he and his family were out rock hounding in the New Mexico desert in 1947 when they came upon a crashed flying saucer. He said they saw the craft's dead crew and one survivor of the crash. These creatures were also described as being approximately four feet tall with big heads, big eyes, flight suits, and milky blue skin. Curiously, this description changed in different interviews. But unlike Frank Kaufman's aliens, Anderson described the hands of these beings as only having four digits. He then asserted that a group of archaeology students and their professor arrived on the scene. Then the military swooped in, from both land and air, and in Roswell legend fashion, began threatening everybody there, swearing them to secrecy, and driving them away from the crash site. Anderson was only five years old at the time, so it's even more impressive that he was able to recall such intricate details from something that allegedly happened when he was a child. As with some of the other people we've discussed today, Anderson's story continued to grow and become more fantastic as he began receiving more attention from Roswell researchers. Some elements of his story were seemingly borrowed or influenced by the Unsolved Mysteries episode. He also claims he touched the craft and described it as being ice cold. He described a foul smell in the air as well. Despite claiming that one of the beings was alive, that it reacted in fear when the family first arrived on the scene, and that his family attempted to communicate with it, Anderson claimed that he reached down and touched one of the bodies, then leapt back in fear because he thought they were dolls. Anderson's story had various weird inconsistencies, and again, the vivid memories and details from when he was a five-year-old child were suspicious. But his credibility eventually crumbled when he was caught in lies and found to have forged documents. For starters, his five-year-old memory impressively remembered the archaeology professor's name, a Dr. Buskirk. Researchers specifically Tom Carey, who holds an advanced degree in anthropology, tracked down an anthropologist named Winfred Buskirk. Anderson had helped researchers create a sketch of the Dr. Buskirk he alleged he saw at the crash site, and reportedly, when people who knew Winfred Buskirk saw the sketch, the two Buskirks seemed to be one and the same. When Dr. Buskirk was contacted, he informed researchers that he had been in Arizona in July of 1947, not New Mexico, and he didn't even earn his Ph.D. until 1949. But Dr. Buskirk did teach high school anthropology in the late 1950s in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a high school that Anderson attended. After contacting the school and obtaining Anderson's records, researchers confirmed that he had taken Dr. Buskirk's anthropology class in 1957. When Anderson became aware that researchers discovered this information, he threatened legal action. Kevin Randall was one of the researchers who discovered that Anderson had taken Dr. Buskirk's class in 1957, as well as other inconsistencies in his story. Anderson certainly didn't take too kindly to being called out by Randall, so he attempted to create a narrative that his only interaction with Randall was extremely brief, thereby negating Randall's assertion that the two had spoken for more than an hour. To do this, Anderson altered his telephone bill, and offered it as proof of a brief conversation. Of course, researchers were able to obtain the phone bill from the phone company, catching Anderson in his lie. 
He also later admitted to altering the phone bill, but the phone bill isn't the only forgery here. Anderson told researchers that when his uncle died, one of the family members who was allegedly with him at the crash site, he was given his uncle's diary that was dated July 1947 and contained his account of discovering the UFO crash. Upon forensic analysis, it was determined that the diary's paper might have been available in 1947, but the ink wasn't manufactured until the 1970s. The authenticity of the diary disintegrated upon further analysis. Anderson offered the explanation that his uncle and his brother liked to make copies of the diary, handwritten copies. However, his uncle died in 1965, before the ink was manufactured, and to add to the red flags, researchers ascertained that the typewriter used to create the cover letter that accompanied the diary sent to Roswell researcher Stanton Friedman was the same typewriter used to alter the phone bill. The January 1993 issue of the MUFON UFO Journal included a statement from Friedman and his co-author at the time, Don Berliner, stating that they, quote, no longer have confidence in the testimony of Gerald Anderson, end quote. And researcher Kevin Randall and others have opined that Anderson has become but a footnote in the Roswell UFO saga. What we've covered today are the primary sources for claims of alien bodies associated with the Roswell UFO incident. Again, these are the only alleged first-hand witnesses who have been publicly identified and interviewed about this incident. There are other claims and testimony from others that refer to bodies, and we'll eventually get to those too. But that's going to do it for this episode. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode as we continue navigating this strange and fascinating legendary UFO case. You can always find more episodes of Unknown on all the major podcast platforms, and you can always find this show and our other shows at RoguePlanet.tv, because Unknown is a Rogue Planet production. RoguePlanet.tv is your home for all the strange. This show is at UnknownUFOPod on Twitter. I'm at Acentric on Twitter and Instagram, and you can always email me at Jason at RoguePlanet.tv, or simply use the contact form on RoguePlanet.tv. We're always happy to hear from you, whether it's simply feedback about the show, a UFO sighting you want to share with us, a paranormal case you'd like us to cover or investigate, or anything else. Thanks again for hanging out today. I'm Jason McClellan. Do us a favor, friends. Always treat the UFO subject with the cautious and responsible skepticism it deserves. Question everything. Have the courage to form your own opinions. Keep truth as the focus of your quest, even if the truth conflicts with your opinions. And, of course, stay strange. Stay strange.